Welcome to Public Theologians, where Christian theology animates leftist politics. I'm your host, Casey Hobbs. This week and next, I'm going to bring you a conversation I had with Dr. Christy Nabhan-Warren. She is the author of a brand new book called Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. That's from University of North Carolina Press. I'm going to tell you a few more things about Dr. Nabhan-Warren before we get started in this two-part series, but I want to give you a couple of plugs first. We do have a Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. I would really appreciate your support on that. I do all the work on this show from coming up with the guests, booking them, talking with them, editing the podcast and getting it out to you. And I would really appreciate a little bit of support on Patreon. That would mean a lot to me. And I could also use your support by following the show, sharing the show with a friend and going on to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating and review. Now, if you do give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts in this season two, you can be entered to win one of our books from past and future guests. And I'm really excited to offer you that space as well. And if you do become a supporter on Patreon for as little as five bucks a month, you can receive one of those books right away. I also wanted to let you know about my Substack. So that's caseyhobbs.substack.com. I deal with issues of with attitudes towards war and peace within a Christian context. I've written recent articles on St. Francis of Assisi, the larger evangelical leadership's attitude towards engagement in political, sociological matters. So I'd appreciate it if you follow me on Substack and hopefully you'll appreciate it as well. Now, as far as Dr. Christy Nabhan-Warren, she is a VO and Elizabeth Call Fig Chair of Catholic Studies and a professor in the Department of Religious Studies in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa. She's the author of several books, including The Curcio Movement in America, Catholics, Protestants, and Fourth-Day Spirituality. Again, she's the author of the book we're discussing today and next week. Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Now, in our first conversation, we're going to talk a lot about immigration. We're going to talk about the experience of past immigration to the state of Iowa that was mainly German. What happened when policies like NAFTA in the 1990s changed the material realities for those white farmers. And of course, talking about how current immigrants and bridging the gap between those older German and Irish immigrants and the folks from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Sudan, and all over the world that are now working in meat packaging plants in the state of Iowa. And next week, we'll talk more about meat packing itself, what work these folks are employed in currently, and we'll get into the ethics of the meat industry itself. So Hopefully you'll enjoy these conversations. I really, as you'll probably hear in these conversations, I really enjoyed speaking with Dr. Nabhan Warren, and I hope that you'll enjoy it and learn a lot as well. So without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren. Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren, thank you so much for joining us on Public Theologians today. Thank you for having me, Casey. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so first of all, tell us about the book, uh, Meat Packing America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland, uh, that just came out September 21st, uh, 2021. Uh, yeah, tell us about the book and how it came to be. That's a great big question. Um, <laughs> I could talk about this for hours, but well, you know, as an ethnographer of religion, I always try to situate myself in place, and I usually spend some time figuring out where the story is. And so I really, a lot of journalists, their work resonates with me because mm -hmm. I, I take my time easing in. And so shortly after I arrived at the University of Iowa in Iowa City um, in the fall of 2012, I thought, you know, I've, I've always liked to do stories um, where, I'm, where I'm rooted, where I'm planted. And so as I sort of was just driving around rural Iowa, getting acclimated to, to my new state, um, became clear to me that there, there was a story with rural America in rural parishes, Catholic parishes. And I have a Catholic studies position here. And so I entered into this project. It was originally called Porn Belt Catholicism and it, mm. and it changed scope and I can share why it changed scope. And so originally, um, and this is a big part of the book, as you know, um, I wanted to understand what was happening in rural America and how rural parishes were responding to the new influxes of, of migrants, of, of refugees, whom I later found out the vast majority are working in meatpacking plants. So the meatpacking part came later. So I was really trying to understand uh, this new consolidation of parishes, you know, parishes closing, consolidation, and there hasn't been that much written about it. Hmm. There's been some and some really good sociological work written by like Brett Hoover, Trisha Mine Bruce, some really great pieces out there. Um, John Seitz has a great book, No Closure, on, on urban closures, but there hasn't really been anything done on rural closures. So as I started conducting interviews with the mostly Latino um, parishioners and getting to know um, priests in three different parishes, so West Liberty, Iowa, Columbus Junction, and Washington, Iowa, it became crystal clear that the vast majority of parishioners, Latinos, worked on the meatpacking line. And if they didn't work, for Tyson or for one of the uh, Smithfield or Iowa premium beef, they worked for some component of the meatpacking, a uh, broadband big ag industry, whether it is uh, producing corn that feeds the hogs and the cattle, whether it's candling eggs, whether it's castrating pigs. And so it started out as a, real, a pretty tight comparative study of rural parishes and closures, and it became much bigger. And that's what I, that's the beautiful thing about doing ethnography, but it's also like, oh my gosh, when do you stop researching? Because it just kept <laughs> sure. growing and snowballing, you know? And yeah, so that's kind of where it where it started. I, I did not enter this thinking at all. I'd be entering meatpacking plants. And as a 30 plus year vegetarian, this field work was probably the hardest field work I've ever done. But that's what I love about being an ethnographer is mm. that I just love being out there in communities. I love following stories and kind of following the trail and seeing where it leads. And it led to the meatpacking plants. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get into, into the meatpacking um, as um, not a vegetarian. It's <laughs> I, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about whew, what, uh, <laughs> what questions that brings up for folks like me in particular. Um, <laughs> But uh, okay, so yeah, I was I was surprised too in your history of the immigrants and migration in Iowa because it starts off with 
with an older history and um, and particularly in, as you said, the, the parish closings um, and how that changes for white America. Um, so yeah, talk about why kind of you started with the Irish German migration stories and, and yeah, just the, the mechanism of talking about that before you talked about the, um, the Latino and um, Congolese and, and whatnot um, that you would probably associate with a little bit of knowledge of meatpacking. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I think that, and I think that's such a great question because I originally intended, again, the story kept growing to focus exclusively on Latinos because all of my scholarship so far has really focused on Latinx Catholicism, Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, but what, what became really important, what became clear to me again, was that as I talked with white ethnic parishioners, you know, Irish, German Catholics, and Czech Catholics, the stories that they were sharing about their relatives coming over, you know, from Ireland, Germany, and experiencing poverty, experiencing discrimination, anti-Catholicism, right, in the public schools, I decided that it would be a really neat thing to do to show connections. The book is really, I guess if I want the reader to have a big takeaway, well, there's a lot of takeaways, I guess I want mm. the reader to have, but <laughs> I started with the white ethnic stories, not so much to privilege them. I mean, Corinne Hargrafen's story is in, is in, this, is in the first chapter, mm. but I start with um, Rosa's story of migrating from, from Mexico. Mm. And so every chapter, as you know, starts with a vignette, easing us into a particular story and a particular milieu. And that was really intentional on my part because I want the reader to, 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 to see, wow, whether we're looking at late 19th, early 20th century white ethnic migrants to more contemporary refugees, mm -hmm. wow, there's a lot of real similarities between their experiences, you know, poverty, discrimination, hard scrabble, um, living, um, you know, most of the white ethnics I talked to had outhouses, for example, they didn't have mm -hmm. indoor plumbing mm -hmm. until like for many years later, and that was a luxury. And so um, I think that what's going to resurrect and what's going to, uh, I don't want to say save these parishes, but I think part of the moving ahead process is, is the successful pairs. When we see success stories, it's precisely when parishioners, white, brown, and black are seeing shared experiences and commonalities. And so I wanted to really tease those out. Obviously there are some real differences too. I mean, white ethnics, were privileged by their their whiteness in ways sure. that you know Latin Latinos and African refugees aren't. So I of course tease out those differences. Mm -hmm. But I thought that you know if I want the reader to get empathy, which is a big thrust of the book for these recent migrants, and to see themselves in them, I needed to also share stories of these white ethnics, which were really powerful, like Corinne Argrafen, who just turned 96. Mm -hmm. Her stories are really powerful, you know? And so I was hoping through storytelling that that would be a way to show that no matter what century, what time period these folks came over, they came over for very similar reasons, to provide for their families, to, um, to buy some land, you know, to get their kids nice shoes and clothing for school. Like some of those basic needs, I'm thinking of like Abraham Maslow studies, right? Mm, some of those right. basic needs that people have, but also just those little extras, you know, like maybe saving up for a vacation for their family. Those were stories that were shared by every single one of the mm. around 130 people I talked with, so. Yeah, 
Yeah, that was fascinating. And, and I think particularly the analysis from at least 2015, 2016 and the election of Trump up till now has been only only racism, which again, in, in your book, you you don't discount and it's, it's, it's a thing, um, but also the collapse of what what white folks um, in these these historically um, white towns um, have, as you say, really, I mean, collapsed into poverty to the point, obviously, that um, that parishes are closing. And so you mentioned NAFTA in that. And I think that also uh, clearly connects back to these migration stories, particularly from Mexico and Guatemala. Um, so, yeah, talk about the central place that Bill Clinton's NAFTA <laughs> plays in, in yeah. this. <laughs> well, gosh, I, uh, I, um, it's funny. I was a political science double major mm. in college, <laughs> but uh, I, have to, I have to like go back to that right now. Casey, that's a yeah. great question. I think the, the takeaway for me was that, you know, and, and I'm someone who supported Clinton at the time mm -hmm. and thought that NAFTA was a great idea, sure. but I'm trying to expose in this book sort of the problematics of neoliberal politics mm -hmm. and what sounded great at the time as a win-win for Mexico and the United States hurt small farmers and landowners in both places, actually. Again, mm -hmm. going back to those commonalities. So, you know, farmers in Iowa and Nebraska as well as those farmers in the Northern Triangle, right? In Mexico, El Salvador, and Guatemala were screwed, right? Yeah, and it was yeah. primarily the larger, you know, corporations in both places, they're the ones who, who, um, who benefited. And so again, this is a broad American story in the sense that we're looking at borderlands mm. history and, and like post-NAFTA borderlands history. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So again, you know, um, the, the woman who ends, who, who sort of ends the book, Reina, mm. her family in Guatemala were small, small farmers and owned land. And they've resorted to collecting, you know, like cardamom pods, like on the side of the road because they lost everything. And so they risked, you know, their lives. And, and she, you know, she was sexually violated crossing over to provide a better life for her children coming over undocumented. And so through, again, going back to these stories, trying to show, um, that folks who really want, you know, to just carve out a living for themselves, even a small plot of land, um, were really harmed by NAFTA. And I shared the story, as you know, of Greg. He's one of those white Iowan farmers whose family was hurt by NAFTA. Um, and, you know, going back to the, the farm crisis of the 80s, right? Um, a little bit before. So he, his family had owned land. His grandfather and father, by the time we got to Greg, lost everything. So Greg works full time. He rents land from a Catholic, a white Catholic woman yeah. in Arden, Iowa. And his hope is to, you know, basically put aside enough money, scroll away enough money to, in order to buy back some of the land to give back to his son. And so this is a real movement that we see uh, a disposition, if you will, in Iowa, like a lot of like grandchildren of white farmers who had lost land are really hoping to reclaim that and, and have something to pass down. And that's something that I'm really interested in, maybe for as part of the next project, sort of what happens after the meatpacking plants, those 
you know, refugees who are able to leave, we're finding that some of them are pulling resources and trying to buy land mm-hmm. to farm because that's what they did, you know, in homelands. And so I think that's that that's an interesting thing that we're going to start seeing in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Going back to that kind of pre-NAFTA owning land, having something to pass down to your kids. Yeah. I was reminded as you're just talking of a Steinbeck book, um, Burning Bright, and it's vignettes of there's a it's surprising there's vignettes of a circus family and there's uh there's another story that relates to this of farmers and um just that the the innate passed down this is in our blood um you know the farm is in our blood and yeah i think that that's something that you really bring out in in these stories and even as you're talking of of these connections. Um, and, and yeah, I was, I was really encouraging it on this podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm in Alabama and I'm not from Alabama. Um, but so I have this kind of chosen connection to the South and what I've, what I see in national media is always this over simplifying of this of the racist south um, which again racism is not absent in the south um it's a thing but you you can you do the same thing with a midwest because this flyover land this heartland is always associated in the same very similar to alabama just maybe without the flashpoints um and again going back to the conversation of um yeah, but but you but you bring out the other side of that. You do bring out kind of the the welcoming and the recognition of the shared farming in the blood um, and hardworking in the blood and being being the other in the blood. Um, so again, so this is one of my times that I, I'm not sure if I have a question, but if, if you, uh, oh, yeah, if you, if you have it. an answer. Then, yeah. No, I think that's great. I'm so glad you shared that about the South. I think you're so right. I think that what, what you're talking about, Casey, I think you're right. I mean, racism, those flashpoints are real, mm-hmm. you know, um, my concern though, with a lot of journalism and even some scholarship lately has been that it's so focused on the flashpoints, mm-hmm. which is important. But I think I think that it's, you know, I was actually really nervous for this book to come out because I think it's a hard time to say, hey, there's nuances because some people Nuance. don't want to no, no, no. nuances. Yeah. They're like, no, you're either right or wrong. You have to mm-hmm. pick sides, right? And so I think that what you're saying there and what I'm trying to do in the book is actually like kind of controversial to some folks, right? And mm-hmm. I think you're right. It's like, it's like, but also yes, racism racism yes white privilege absolutely mm-hmm. um absolutely i mean iowa is a deeply racist place in mm-hmm. so many ways and we have our own flashpoints here but also you know you see all these white religious folks um you know connected with churches not always doing works of social justice and uplift you know and some of those people also voted for trump and mm-hmm. so how do we how do those sit side by side and so my, I was hoping that the reader would feel uncomfortable reading it, like that the, the reader's impressions of this place would be challenged 
just as they would be challenged if you were to write a book about where you are now in Bama, right? Because like people think of it as a certain place. Well, evangelical Christianity, Trumpism, you know, Alabama equals this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. No, and to a lot of people, Iowa equals this, this, and this. And it's like, well, wait a minute. When you go into the meatpacking plants, it's like the UN. It's yeah. like they're some of the most, these are the most diverse workplaces, you know, in the country, I would argue. And, you know, there's pros, you know, and, and I'm not saying this is a racial utopia here. Right. <laughs> but look at what's going on here, pros and cons. Um, and let's really dig in there, you know. And so, as you know, I share the story of Mike, Michael Gager. And I, I would premium beef. I spent like a lot of time with Mike when I was doing the field work in, in the Iowa premium beef plant, you know, Mike voted for Trump, you know, he's a gun guy, you know, he, I spent a lot of time with Mike. He smokes, you know, I don't smoke. I, mm-hmm. I think I smoked several packs that week, like, a, you know, right. smoke, you know <laughs> I like detox, but you know, Mike, you know, he's, he's, he's these things, but we had some incredible conversations about gender and what it means to promote women in the workplace and the problems with the democratic party and neoliberalism. And I'm mm-hmm. like, actually we have a point of connection here. Yeah. And so I think what I'm trying to encourage the reader to do is try to think in a moderate way, Let, let's, let's occupy that middle space here. And, and what might the story look like if we give it time, if, if we, if we let things stew and we're open to nuances. Yeah. Well, yeah. I appreciate you saying that a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I love, I love everything you say. That's, that's, that's really great. Um, you started it out. So you yeah. framed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, as a, as a leftist that has, you know, huge problems with exactly what you're talking about with the neoliberalism. And that's why I bring up NAFTA. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think that's, again, something that is lost in, in Alabama, just like it's lost in Iowa, is when the economy falls apart to the point that it has, you, you do see a desperation and you do see um, a, a change in um, how people see these parties because the Democratic Party has not been helpful to rural America. And when, you know, the, the wife of the framer of NAFTA comes out and calls these people deplorables. It's, it's hard to get super angry at these people when you actually spend time with them. And um, yeah, because their situation has been affected by that attitude. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, most of in like West Liberty and Columbus Junction, Columbus Junction was a, was a real primary fieldwork site. You saw, you saw some Trump signs, but you mostly saw Bernie signs. You didn't see Clinton signs. You saw Bernie signs. And so too in West Liberty, I mean, it was Bernie, um, Bernie and some Trump, but yeah, 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 I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, yeah, great. I just want to yeah. Yeah, reaffirm. I right. think that's a great point. I think it's yeah. a great point. Yeah. I mean, it's no surprise, you know, I mean, there's so much that I love about Hillary Clinton, you know, personally, and I was really mm-hmm saddened by the misogyny you know i mean she was treated True. so yeah. so horrible but wasn't the candidate for rural america middle america yeah yeah then the fallout of nafta and the associations right or wrong with with their spouse absolutely yeah absolutely yeah 100 100 percent on that yeah. um okay so yeah and we talked about we're talking about farming and and family farms to um, the industrial agriculture we see now and the consolidation of farming. At one point you say, um, 
corporate America is the new religion in America today. The Corn Belt is where it's being nourished and raised. Um, so yeah, talk about talk about this transition. I think it's we when politicians um, or public figures come out and you know like Farm Aid, and you have all these bands coming out and and raising money for farms. Um, we get this picture of, you know, mom, pa, kettle out there raising a farm. And yeah, is that still the case? And, and how has that changed the landscape? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, you've got an aging uh, farmer population and many, you have a lot of farm widows, women mm. who are inheriting farms. So women like Lois, who's in the book, um, who rents out land. And so a lot of the white women, female parishioners at St. Joseph the Worker in Columbus Junction, a lot of these women are Catholic and they've inherited land, but they're like in their seventies, you know, and they're just, I mean, some of them are doing some work, but they're, they're, you know, renting out, um, you know, the land to sometimes Latinos, oftentimes white men again, who want, you know, and so yes, you've got small farms, um, and you've got, um, I think a really interesting movement. There's a lot of women. And so I'm really um, thinking about um, for the next project, going to like a lot of these meetings with these women farmers mm. and just like learning from them. Mm. Um, but you mo- you have mostly big ag, right? You have mostly big ag. So you've got, you know, you've got, you've got the small farms still and you've got century farms, you know, which are still around, but they're the minority, right? The majority sure. are, are the big ag, right? And um you know, Monsanto's big, you know, like genetically modified seeds are big here. I mean, you know, so a lot of Iowa state is like the ag school. So, you know, you get like a lot of the grads there end up working for Monsanto mm-hmm. and they work for the meatpacking plants. You know, I've met um, women at IPB whose husbands work for Monsanto and they kind of live halfway in between the plants, you know? And so the reality is that this is, this is corporate America here in rural America. And because this is a right to work red state, as much as I want to say it's a purple state that it's becoming purple right now, it's pretty red. Mm-hmm. Except for little pockets like Iowa City, where I live, it's a little blueberry bubble. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, this is like a pro Bernie area. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's corporate America, and I think that um, I like that this what you read aloud. I think what I try to do in the book is to look at religion as it's lived in the plants. Okay, what happens when we go to go to work and look at how religion is lived out? And I think in one way is it's lived out in the plants is through the lexicon of corporate America, like Tyson, mm-hmm. which has the largest global chaplaincy program, you know. And so in every single Tyson plant, as you read, you know, there's there's a chaplain, right? And who's like, you know, Joe Belay, who who's become a good friend of mine in Columbus Junction, they're like part-time counselors, part-time you know, ministers part-time, you know, they take injured workers to the doctor. Um, but in the end, you know, they work for the corporation and they have to tell the workers, you know, suck it up and work hard. Um, and so there's an interesting evangelical, you know, lexicon of like faith, work and family that trickles down in various ways at both of the plants where I did field work. But then it's also like, how do you make a really profane, violent, bloody place? Is it possible to make it sacred? 
none of the workers I interviewed talked about it as a sacred place. What they, mm-hmm. how they talked about their religion was that it provided a shield and a comfort for them. It protected them as they went into work and they prayed to God that they wouldn't like lose a limb, you know, because none of them want their kids to work there. They're doing this to provide for their families so that their kids don't have to work on the line. Maybe they can work in the corporate side of Tyson, but not on the line. So, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the conditions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's So, okay. So even getting into this at the very beginning and you, you have the detail of your, your time spent physically in these processing plants, kind of in the middle uh, section of the book. And it really, I mean, it's for folks maybe who haven't read The Jungle, um, Upton Sinclair's 1906 um, novel about, uh, and I think he's a Czech immigrant, if I'm remembering right. Um, in Chicago, it's, yeah, the the brutality um, of, of meat processing. And um, also was thinking of Eric Slosher's um, uh, the chain never stops. Yeah, the chain never stops. Yeah. Fast food nation, and um, yeah. and anyway, so but you you were physically there. Um, yeah, talk about your experience. All of those sources you mentioned were so instrumental, and I just want to like I always want to like say that this book is only possible because of all the great scholarship that's come before this book and that's out now, right? And so you mentioned like the farming and faith, you know, like farming in the blood, Bob Withnow, Robert Withnow, famous sociologist has a a couple wonderful books out on farming and the Midwest Mm -hmm. and faith. Um, And then, yeah, Upton Sinclair's book, I I had to, I reread the jungle. Um, Eric Schlosser's, I think that was in Mother Jones, right? The chain never stops. Like that piece was just so, um, so moving to me. And then Fast Food Nation, absolutely. So I had a lot of images of what it would look like when I went into the plant. And there have been other anthropologists of religion who have gone in, but what I decided to do, I didn't wanna go undercover. I wanted to be really open about it. They knew I was a scholar. Um, you know, I had to get special permission. Um, I had to sign forms that I wouldn't, what, what they were mostly worried about is that I would disclose sort of trade secrets about the machinery, but I, I was allowed to carry around notebooks. I wasn't allowed to take pictures, which is too bad because there were some great scenes I would have sure. liked to capture. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I really wanted to get across in the, in the book is that it's bloody, it's disgusting, it's violent, but it's not the jungle in the sense that like old raw meat or like rat sure. droppings being mixed into the sausage. Mm-hmm. What really impressed me and what I did want to get across to meat eaters, because I know the vast majority of Americans do eat meat. My family eats meat. I mm-hmm. buy meat. So I'm, I'm part of the meat eating world. I don't yeah. eat it. My, my kids love bacon. You know, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I kept thinking about that as the sow's bodies were literally yeah. I could feel their bodies against mm-hmm. my day. But I mean, the cleanliness of these places and the care that they take. So I got a tour, you know, from the beginning to the end in both places. And in IPV, it was a very intensive experience where I was able to see every single part. Um, These are as sterile as they can be. I mean, they live up, you know, USDA standards. Um, So I was very impressed with the sort of this the sterility of it and how often they check for E. coli. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the line would be shut down if things went wrong. 
uh, there's a really gruesome sort of descriptive scene with Iowa premium beef where they discover an, as you read, probably where they discover an abscess in one of the cattle mm. and quickly cleaned it up. And as I mentioned, Roger, who was the, 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 the manager of the cold side, the fabrication side. So this is, you know, after the meat, you know, it's basically cutting the meat into parts. And he said to me, are you sure you want to put that in your book? And I said, yeah, I do. Because the reader needs to know that this kind of thing happens and this is how you took care of it. So I actually think that this should be in the book. Um, and so I wanted to get it across that there have been leaps forward sure. since the jungle, but the line speed keeps continuing with COVID. I mean, all the research for this book was done before COVID. Um, I do have, um, I do attend to COVID and the irresponsibility on the, on the part of the, of the packing plants to a point but you know, the book was almost impressed when this happened. And so I had to do the COVID part quickly. I got mm. an opt out. And, but what I really want to do now, I think, um, I don't know if it'll be a, a next book or, or an article is I really want to look at how workers are organizing now um, and how they're organizing in church spaces, Catholic church spaces mm. to push back against corporations saying, you haven't done enough for our safety. You keep speeding up the line. Yes, there are PPEs in place, but you still need to do more. And by the way, we need to make more because we're not unionized. And so um, I think that's gonna be a next project, whether it's a book or not, but I think that that's what I wanna look at more. How are workers organizing um, in a state that has really um, done everything it's can to, to clamp down on, on unionization? Yeah, yeah, talk about that a bit. Um, you mentioned, right to work a couple of times already in our conversation and in the book, yeah. that's, it's definitely, um, if not a major theme, it's definitely a, a it's a theme throughout the book. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great way to start this. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, as I trace, um, the meatpacking industry from being an urban phenomenon where before it was vertically integrated, where everything was pretty much, um, you know, done in this dense urban area and was very public. Now it's being moved to these sort of these hidden spaces. No one really knows what's going on in these places, right? Um, it's harder to unionize. And this was intentional, right? These packing plants were moved to remote places um, where, where people don't live. They actually have to drive in from multiple sites. Yeah. And so it's harder to unionize when you don't all live mm. in a dense urban area, right? So this was an intentional, um, this was an intentional thing for lack of a better word on the right. part of the packing plants, right? When they when they moved out of heavily unionized cities like Cincinnati and Chicago and moved to rural places in Nebraska and Iowa and, and out east of North Carolina and even down south, right? Like where you are, Casey. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I wanted to get across that while, you know, when we think of meat, I think when a lot of people think of meatpacking too, maybe this is another trope that I wanted to push. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of it so much as a trope was that when a lot of folks think about meatpacking, they think, oh, really strong unionization. Well, that hasn't been true since the diffusion of packing plants into rural America. But I think now we're starting to see a shift. We're starting to see um, grassroots organizations uh, like here in Iowa, my good friend, David Goodner, who's with the Catholic Worker House, um, he's very involved in um, organizing workers. And just last night, they met at St. Joseph uh, in West Liberty, which was one of the sites, the church was one of the sites um, 
field work for the book and over 40 workers for Tyson showed up and mm. they're starting slowly to unionize. It, it takes time yeah. and it uh, it's going to take time um, for workers to, you know, I was just talking with David about this yesterday to get up the courage to, to push back against Tyson, you know, cause they're going to lose their health insurance maybe for mm. a time. And so I think that, um, I think that I see a lot of hope for labor organizing in, in Iowa, just because of people I know who are very involved in this. I'm personally not right now. Um, but workers last night met uh, at the city council in West Liberty. They're demanding hazard pay um, and stimulus money from the city's allocation of, from the American Rescue Plan funding. And so I think we're gonna start seeing more and more grassroots organizing, and this is going to take place and is in churches. So this goes back to, as my friend Felipe Hinojosa talks about in his wonderful new book, Apostles of Change, Latinos um, have long been active in, you know, merging their Catholic faith with their commitment to unions. And I think that the time is right for this to ha happen in Iowa. And I'm wondering about other states, like such as North Carolina, I'm not so sure about that state, mm -hmm. but it's a similar state as, you, as I'm sure you know, in terms of it being a red state, being a real site of, um, you know, right to work and also um, Tyson plants, you know, chicken right. and pork plants, so yeah. Yeah, so kind of backing that up a little bit, um, you mentioned the history of, of these plants and the meat processing moving from Cincinnati and Chicago primarily to these rural areas. What time frame are we talking about? Was that um, like kind of in the Reagan years? Was that before yeah, that? We're, yeah, we're talking like end of the 60s, 70s, 80s, which dovetailed the farm crisis, right? So right at the mm -hmm. time we get the farm crisis, we've got... Um, uh, we've got the de-urbanization and ruralization of meat packing plants, right? So we've got economic crisis, white farmers mostly losing their farms, high rates of suicides, right? Farms being bought up by big ag, you know, very few corporations owning land, much like there being like very few corporations, big four, big five, owning meat packing plants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, corn processors and meat packing plants so we're like, there's this, like maybe, I don't know if you want to call it an unholy alliance, some kind sure. of an alliance, right? Where, you know, what industry insiders call vertical integration. So before, when you had the packing plants, you know, turn of the century, you know, the animals would be shipped in and then there would be the stockyards, right? Well, now in Iowa and Nebraska and Kansas, everything happens in a very tight space. So you've got farmers in cattle ranchers in Washington, Iowa, raising black Angus steer growing corn and, you know, driving their cattle for slaughter um, half hour away to Iowa premium beef or hogs, for example. So mm -hmm. it's all within like an hour now where it's just everything's interconnected, right? There's this like closed loop, if you will. That didn't exist when you had these, well, you couldn't in, the, in these dense urban areas, you just didn't have the land. And then you also have, you know, CAFOs too, right? Where you've got um, poultry and where you have hogs um, just being confined, you know, confined animal feeding operations. Mm. These are very difficult to find. Um, my 15 year old son and I spent an afternoon where we were, we were driving around rural Iowa trying to find one so I could, we could take pictures mm. um, for the book. And he said, mom, I think that's a CAFO. I'm like, I don't think. So we had this sort of fun, but sort of 
you know, it was a real education for him. He's like, mom, what is a CAFO? And so I was trying mm-hmm. to describe to him, again, these spaces are hidden for a reason, but they're close enough to each other, right? Where they can be part of this closed loop. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so moving kind of back forward, um, you you mentioned the connection with the Catholic Church in particular and organizing and uh, labor unions. And in the book, you you mention um, a couple of the priests that you profiled had a strong liberation theology um, background and um, an impulse. So, so yeah, talk about uh, as much as you want about the, um, the liberation theology um, and centering the poor as being um, influential in those spaces where not only is there growing and, and established now white poverty, um, but then you have all these very poor immigrants um, kind of reforming the social structures of, of the spaces you mentioned. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, you know, sometimes I thought, is it is is it because I want to see this, or is it because it's actually happening? But it's actually <laughs> happening, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I had to sort of bracket what what like Christie's move from like what's actually on the ground. But yeah, I mean, so as you know, one of the chapters profiles um, activist priests, you know, and I sort of like tongue in cheek say, you know, like a big sticker, a big thing that people wear on their sweatshirts at Iowa Hawkeye football games. It's like, a, you know, um, ANF, American Needs Farmers. And I sort mm-hmm. of like say, well, if they had their way, these priests would have like American Needs Refugees, you know, right. ANR, you know, and it's true. So I got to know, um, so I introduced some of the storytelling in one of these chapters is Father Joseph Sia, the former parish priest of St. Joseph the Worker in Columbus Junction. And it's really, you know, Father Joseph, who's Filipino and an immigrant himself, he's the one who really got me thinking I should go to the meatpacking plant. And he Mm. facilitated my first visit to Tyson in Columbus Junction. And so, yeah, Father Joseph is a fascinating guy and he's now with the diocese and he's in charge of um, really mentoring and uh, nurturing, uh, getting a critical number of Latino priests. And so he's really... On that on that level now, which is really exciting. So he's he's doing a lot of exciting things. And then Father Bernie, um, you know, he says I'm a white guy with a Latino heart. You know, mm. he's a kind of an ex hippie. You know, a long hair. He cuts his hair every year to raise money. You know, for his parish. <laughs> you know, he's in Washington, Iowa. So they're two of the guys who I really feature. Um, and Father Joseph was great because he he really helped me understand. Um, the, the Catholic theological idea of accompaniment, right? Mm. And what it means to accompany um, other humans on their journey. And he really saw his role as, as someone who would accompany um, not only his Latino prisoners, but his white prisoners. Because, you know, as he said that w- what was in the book, you know, he said, I really have a schizophrenic ministry. He said, yeah. I've got you know, the white, the English speaking mass, which is a small number. And then you have the Spanish speaking mass, which is literally bursting at the seams. Mm-hmm. And he's really, he was, when he was there at St. Joseph the Work, he was really trying to bring folks together. And there were a lot of challenges to that, you know? Um, and so he led and he would, you know, his homilies would have, you know, liberation theology. He would quote, um, 
you know, Pope Francis, you know, he would say, hey, in Columbus Junction, it's where the rubber hits the road. We really have to like, you know, treat each other, you know, we're neighbors, you know, we're, we're in this together. I mean, so he really, really tried and he really accompanied again, both. He, he mm. didn't, he didn't want the white prisoners to feel that he privileged the Latino prisoners because he was always really aware of like how he was perceived. Sure. So I really, I really am so grateful to Father Joseph um, just for being a good friend and for really showing me, you know, because every, every single interview, because he and I met like almost weekly, I would mm. drive down to the junction and we would talk and sort of, he would help me unpack all the interviews. And he said, and I said, you know, everyone I'm talking to works at Tyson and and I'm like, and he said, well, you need to go to Tyson, don't you? And I'm like, oh my God, I hadn't yeah. even thought. <laughs> I, I was, guess. Oh my yeah. God. You know? <laughs> so he said, I'll go with you. He goes, I'm good friends with Joe Blay and um, the former human resources manager, um, Dave. And he said, yeah, I can get you access. And uh, it kind of, again, many ethnographers, when we do qualitative research, we call it the snowball method. You know, you start talking to some people and then they introduce you to other people and it just keeps snowballing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just really felt like this whole book was a huge snowball because it was, like, you know, I went in thinking this was going to be about porn about Catholicism and then sure. it just kept growing and it, and it was actually hard to know when to stop. Right. Yeah. Like, like how imagine. do you know a story? But um, yeah, these priests were really exciting and it really gave me a lot of hope because, you know, I think, Another powerful reality of the Catholic Church hierarchy these days, right, is the abuse scandal mm -hmm. that seems to be ongoing, right? And so when many folks think of a Catholic priest, they think, well, he's an abuser, right? Yeah. Um, you know, or he's covered it up. And and I mean, that's, there's, there's a lot of truth. To, I mean, obviously truth to that story. The sex mm -hmm. abuse scandal is ongoing and it's horrific. And it hit the the Davenport um, diocese, you know, um, in the time before I started doing this project, but also, you know, we have these priests who are deeply committed to social justice. And I wanted to tell that story as much as I wanted to tell a story of, you know, Midwestern white Catholics and non-Catholics who are really trying to make inclusive spaces. So again, it's a but and story throughout. And that's the show. Music is by Orbach, art by Phil Nellis. I really want to thank Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren for joining us in part one of this conversation. Next week, you can look for the release of part two of our conversation. And I am confident that you will learn a lot and enjoy that conversation as well. Support us on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We would so much appreciate your support. And follow my Substack at caseyhobbs.substack.com to get the latest updates of my conversations with folks and what is rattling around in my brain. Well, thanks again for listening. Now go in peace to love and serve. Mm -hmm.